I realise I should have said this right at the top because if people have got this far, I mean, the audience will. I've seen the stats for these things; they just dip as I soon can, as you get to it. I can stick this as stick the, the uh, cold opening. So, so the reason, that, the actual genuine reason that I'm here is that Helen Zaltzman donated some money to a campaign we were running for refugees. That's right. Refuate, like on the basis that I wanted. To, to raise money for it and I said oh, well, I'll, I'll go on Dave's show if yeah 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 I mean people, regular listeners will have heard me saying donate money to get Matt on yes I hope that would be a massive uh, donation draw but it turns out uh, less people are, are obsessed with getting you on this <laughs> show than you? me but just the very fact that someone did donate and it was Helen as well made me think well okay alright let's let's do this and here we are. Hello, my name's Dave and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together. And welcome to the 300th episode of Getting Better Acquainted. Thank you everybody who listens to this show. Without people listening, these conversations would not have as many dimensions. What I like about podcasting is I have these conversations with people and then the people listening bring themselves to their listening and they take from these conversations different things from each other and that's part of what I think is beautiful about conversations about people and about podcasting and I'm really pleased that Getting Better Acquainted has lasted for 300 episodes and I'm really excited to see what happens in the next 300 episodes. In Monday's Getting Better Acquainted replayed I gave a commentary on the first episode of Getting Better Acquainted and dealt with my past self. And I would say that if you listen to that and you felt like I was letting my past self off the hook in any way, you should know that I didn't say everything that I feel when I listen back to that first episode. I don't kind of like myself in that episode. I don't really like myself back then. I don't really like myself now. Uh, but you can't always be down on yourself and you have to try and sometimes look for some of the positives. And that's kind of what I try to do because this is a celebratory season and I was trying to look for things to celebrate. But believe me, if you've got critiques or criticisms or things that you want to yell at me about, assume that I also may feel that too, because I would like to yell at my past self for many things. Today's episode is the main kind of part of the 300 season. This is a straight up Getting Better Acquainted conversation. So if you've never listened to the show before, this episode is a pretty good introduction to what the show is generally like. And my guest is somebody who has consistently supported Getting Better Acquainted for the last six years. But at the same time as doing that, he has consistently avoided being a guest on the show today that changes on friday there's going to be a very short getting better acquainted extra which is a kind of musical episode and i'll say no more about it than that if you didn't think that cold opening was something that pulled you in and hooked you like i like my cold openings to be fair enough here's another one see what you think of that there was a moment in the car where i could have said to the driver to slow down and i didn't because socially you don't do that you're with mates you're like you know full of life and you're sort of like you know you're having fun so why would you tell everyone to stop having fun um and so now and have been ever since really i'm a bit the other way not just in cars but i will often tell people what i think (laughs) Uh, not in a particularly arrogant way but i uh if i do think things are out of hand or i'm you know I have no regrets uh, about doing that. 
Okay, it's recording now, um, and I might move the microphone around a little bit uh, to get better levels, uh, but don't worry about that. I'd like my guests to forget that the microphone's there. You're a um, man after my own heart. Indeed. And in fact, although I think it's going to be harder for people to forget that the microphone's there now I've got this new tripod, because uh, it makes the microphone kind of bigger. There's a kind of eye line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing, it's there. It's, yeah. How it's long have you had this? Um, a couple of months, maybe. Okay. And I've not really used it much for getting better acquainted until today. I like to think you're making a special effort for me to uh, improve the sound quality. Well, I think that's, that's, that would be a wise move for, 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 for having uh, such an audio uh, great onto the show. Um, <laughs> but, before, but before we get kind of too uh, carried away by conversation, uh, I better start the show properly. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. (laughs) Oh, I didn't think this day would come, Matt. Well, Um, neither did I. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, We went to university together. And met very much, I think, either the first day or the second day of of, uh, of Yeah. Lancaster University? I reckon it was really early. Like, I always say I met Jen on the first day of university, but that's not technically true. I met her on the first kind of official working day, like it was the first workshop, and you would have been at that workshop too, I believe. Yes, well, we, I, I believe we fooled around on the floor, was basically what happened in the... Well, I'm thinking creative writing workshop, oh. which was on the first Monday. Was that on the first day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like 8.30 in the morning on the first Monday of actual yeah, proper university. Yeah, that's universe. right, because I, I do remember thinking... I couldn't quite work out how that when we did the theatre studies initial workshop, we already had met. My origin story with Jen is also uh, my origin story with you. Uh, so that means we've we've been, we've been to, together as friends for sixteen years uh, or so. Yes, yeah, about that. Yeah, and so we met almost half our lives, Dave. I know, <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah. And the, yeah, so we met, we did two courses together in the first year. Um, so I've, I've already mentioned creative writing. What you were talking about in terms of workshops was uh, theatre studies. Yes. Um, yeah. And so we both, we did both those courses together at first and then you dropped out of creative writing at the end uh, of the first year. I only in, only ever intended to do it as a one year. So at Lancaster, we had this thing that we were... Um, you could take part in something in the first year, like to dabble a little bit. So I did creative writing and philosophy as well right. here, as theatre studies. And then I just went to pure theatre. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was a good that. move. My, my degree is called creative arts, which sounds like it's a, um, it sounds like a parody degree, whereas you've got <laughs> like a proper BA in something people have heard of, although it is theatre studies, so it's still not that. That I mean, impressive. <laughs> I mean, true, and but then also, like, when was the last time you showed a certificate for your? I, I think I grew up thinking that these certificates I I earned through A levels and degrees and what have you would all be useful. Like you'd actually have to hand them in at interviews or something. Someone would have to read them, but you, you really don't, do you? No. It's like I can kind of see why, uh, you know, fraud and people blag their way up and yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I can too, and I definitely think that 
you know, you work so hard for your, uh, first of all, GCSEs, and then they're irrelevant. And then you work really hard for your A-levels, and then they're irrelevant. And then you work really hard for your degree if you choose to go to, to get a degree. And then that quite quickly becomes irrelevant in some ways. It's almost as though the whole degree process is to make you smarter rather than get you employed well you'd think that was what it was about but that bit kind of still shows that it is isn't it because no one actually checks do they so it is really about learning it's just that governments and stuff make us feel like it, it needs to well be they to try to i mean it's complicated as well universities yeah. also in some ways make you feel that and also that is kind of the promise that's given to a lot of people like a lot of people only go to university because they think that it's the way to get employment and also that's you know it's true that it is the way to get to employment Matt as well if you're not you know people who did theatre studies (laughs) yeah well I I feel like I I well I don't I don't regret any course I've taken I think they've all helped me get where I am now Um, but that's maybe through like some sort of bloody mindedness to use everything I've learned in some form or order but you know yeah yeah and like the thing is we met very early on in in uni like we've said um and one of the things that kind of happened in that first year is you know you saw something in a play that I was submitting to creative writing and you were like oh this could be like this and then you you said that to me and I was like it definitely could that's a great idea and you were like shall we set up a theatre company to make that happen and I was like absolutely and that's what we did right yeah that's pretty much it I'd kind of come to uni with having been um always in this mentality of like well i want to go to university i want to do two things i want to start a theater company and i want to be in the radio station the student radio station and that kind of happened because um i'd been part of a youth theater group which had done all those kind of they they weren't just doing uh, plays of other people's whatever they were sort of devising their own stuff and um, doing it in places that weren't theatres you know doing it outside or whatever and so I thought well I've got to I've got to use some of this when I get to university and then I saw uh, the your uh, seeing double play right and just thought yeah that sound, this this is set in several bars on a bar crawl we're at university why wouldn't we want to go on a bring a whole bunch of students on a bar crawl and have a play as well and so let's make that happen yeah I mean it was a perfect uh connection between like script and location I really liked that about it I hadn't thought of that myself like I hadn't realized that you could literally do theatre as a bar crawl I think I was very much uh in my mind I mean I of course knew that other kinds of theatre existed but I was very much proscenium arch is like what I'm writing my stuff for um, although actually I think the original stage design for that play was like rotating stage and all sorts of yes, crazy yeah. things um, but the idea of making it into a bar crawl was 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 just so great because there were so many bars in that campus like yeah. that's one of the things we went to Lancaster there's there was like 10 bars yeah as a campus university that's why I wanted to go I wanted to go to a campus university because it I had no intention of going to a city I know I came I come from a just a, a small town in the West Midlands and I didn't have any idea that I wanted to like, move somewhere like London where yeah, we are now where we're that, recording yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where well, we both know, lived this, for this a is long development time. Uh, but yeah. It, yeah I uh, I suppose the, the I just want to, I just love that sense of community and a campus just feels like you know people kind of getting to know each other and the bars were brilliant for that I think and yeah the the play kind of was an opportunity to kind of go and meet all the different 
bar like uh, managers or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Get a sense of like how they all tick. Yeah, I mean that was it. It was like a very much kind of. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Like you, like we had like you know, people should know that this play was a very. Um, in the end, I think a very, very ambitious thing for two students to do, to put on. Like we had to liaise with, like, as you say, all of the bar managers, but we also had to kind of cast it, like rehearse it uh, and all of the normal things that you do. But it was like there was two teams of production teams, right? There was the A team and the B team, right? Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was all, of, all of that stuff, like, all, it delights me. It still delights me. Yeah. The idea of... Oh, well, how can we make this work? No one's done this before, or at least, you know, in my inexperienced head, that was the case. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, bringing in people like Zoe, uh, see, episode GBA 241. Yeah, or, whenever it was early, uh, early uh, Much think. earlier, yeah. Much earlier, like, you know, to do the <laughs> stage, oh, well, yeah. Uh, the, you know, to be a stage manager and... and um, and just to run about the place. Right. I quite, I, I don't like really sitting, standing still. So it was kind of fun to be able to run between locations, and right? Check and everything it, was ready. And, and it was pre, it was pre mobile phones in a way. They hadn't yeah. really come in. So yeah. I think we had walkie talkies. I, I seem to remember I there was walkie talkies. Yeah, involved. I think we might have done. Um, and you know, it was a kind of situation where you know the, one team would go and set up the next bar while the scene was happening in the previous bar. And also, another thing that's we interesting, didn't, we didn't actually tell all the bar managers. I think that's fair to say. Or if we did warn them, it was we gave them like ten minutes warning. It was kind of like a need to know basis. By the way, there's going to be a play. It's going to turn up in about ten minutes. It was pretty guerrilla the way we did <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, there, there were definitely some interesting discussions we had to have. With bar managers around it, if I remember rightly, but there was, but it was, you know, it was a real like we did it for comic relief. So you know, mm. even back then we were doing things for free where we probably shouldn't have been, um, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, but the the fact that it was a kind of people didn't have to pay, or if they did, it was for a charity. Kind of made a nice. Yeah, did we bust element. it? Was it? Yeah, it was like a, a bucket. Yeah, money in a bucket. Yeah. yeah, and and also the other thing about it was it snowed. And so we had these outdoor oh, scenes, yeah, and we had yeah. this amazing moment on the snow, um, of you know, the, of these two characters coming towards the main protagonists to uh, abduct them, and the audience knew that was going to happen, but the characters didn't. But we could hear them crunching on the snow, coming to you know, coming behind them, which was mm-hmm. kind of we couldn't have we that was you know we didn't make that theatre you know the weather did but yeah, but yeah. that moment was one of those kind of serendipitous moments where I was like wow but also the thing about that that play Seeing Double as well which surprises me now is I like to think of myself as well I don't like to think of myself but I'm aware that I didn't define myself as a feminist for quite a lot of years because I didn't think men could define that way um, and yet that play you know, was completely about everything I'm making stuff about now. It was all about masculinity and like the performance of masculinity yeah. and de- deprogramming men to make them more sensitive and caring and feel it, feel things more and be more true to themselves. Um, yeah, and like so, it's weird to me now thinking back. Like retroactively, I've been quite consistent in my work, but I never realised I was during the, the the sixteen years of it. And also, just in terms of the staging of it, it was, you know. You know, it's like going on a bar crawl. You know, yeah. that's a very kind of, I think, for the the time, certainly, like a very sort of alpha male activity or one that you could buy into feeling like a man. Well, it was very but, lad culture yeah. at that moment. But the idea the of doing it... The first time that phrase came up was around about then. Yeah, I think that, but doing it on a 
bar, you know, doing a play on a bar crawl is kind of like it, it sort of like takes the edge off that. I think to a certain extent, right? Doing something other than just going and drinking and way with the lads and all that business, right? Well, it also yeah. it made it made it much more effective when the characters did get kind of kidnapped and kind of have these kind of Harold Pinter style uh, interrogations where they kind of deprogram from their masculinity, like well, whilst tied on pool yeah, tables, pool table, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 and. That moment was much more effective, I think, because it had been so fun up to that point. Like, the show had been a lot of fun. Weird, but fun. And then suddenly, serious moment. And I, th- I, loved, I love that effect, right? Yeah. I love it when that happens, when tones shift, like, really suddenly. And Yeah. And, and so the thing about this is, I, I think, like, that's the thing. What you brought to that was like fun and also like a popular idea of like what works like pop I mean I don't know if you're gonna think that's a a criticism but it's definitely not like I feel like you have much more of a a finger on the pulse of like what's popular popularly interesting like I'm all for pop uh, but I don't necessarily make it naturally whereas you uh, have an instinct for what people will enjoy I think um, and so I, it was a great kind of collaborative moment for me, like to meet you who could, who would kind of take these ideas and make them, make them more mainstream, not completely mainstream. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that it takes a lot to make me mainstream. Um, but you know, but yeah, so it was, I, I always think of it as a very fortunate meeting. Um, and then we carried on that, that theatre company for quite a few years. Right? We did. Yeah. Well, quite a few years is pushing it a few years till the end of uni. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. We enlarged it, we got more members in it who were in the kind of team, and then eventually the team left to join <laughs> somebody else's theatre company, and I was no longer working with the rest of the team who were in, in uh, Richer Kingdom's theatre company, which I felt a little bit, bit, bit bitter about for a few years, but no longer, so that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, it was, there wasn't really, it wasn't really a rupture, was it? It was that the... I mean, because the, the, it didn't really... It kind of disbanded voluntarily. Yeah, absolutely. And then about like a few weeks later, uh, Richard Kingdom started a, you know, we were we devising our final, like our, I think it was our second year piece actually, and that was, uh, no, no, it was our third year piece, wasn't it? And the Stranger Compelling, which was the name of our theatre company, did a devised piece which we took to Edinburgh, which yes. was a great success actually, and that was the first yeah. time that, that that was the first time that our department gave us any credit. We'd been working, doing these plays, doing this theatre stuff for a number, for like two years, and we'd not get any credit. We took a show to Edinburgh between the second and the third year, came back and they were like, would you like to do it in our theatre? Let's kind of be really nice about you now. And it was kind of an interesting moment. But then during that year, Richard was very interested in devising and only devising. And I was not, I was interested in playwriting. Um, which is very ironic, though, now, because now I'm making devised drama as a, as a podcast, and Richard is really into plays. Um, yeah, so super. everything is completely yeah, it's, it's uh, switched stuff, around yeah. there. But yeah. you, you were, I guess, were just kind of in a position of like, well, Richard's got a thing that he's doing, uh, I'll do that. And that was very reasonable. And I wasn't asked because I'd been so against the idea of devising things. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, it's easy to forget, but like my contribution to that... Uh, Third year show. I say easy to forget, as though people listen as to if this. People know <laughs> <what we're doing. laughs> think about it yeah, yeah. between us, yeah, because yeah. this is a conversation, yeah, Dave, it is. you know, that people over here. Uh, <laughs> it's easy to forget that um, that show, that first show, Harry's always right. I, I just did tech for it. 
you know, I did a sound design yeah. and uh, I, I didn't perform in it or anything, even though I did a bit of that. It was a great show, by the way. I mean, it was, I really enjoyed yeah. it, but I was sat at the back with a, effectively a full uh, MIDI keyboard firing. I've never done anything like it since uh, and I haven't done it, anything like it before. Um, but the awesome power of firing off all that audio and like stuff, I, it, was, it was the most thrilling thing. One day I'll get back to that level of Pink Floyd style. Right. Uh, <laughs> music at the stra- extravaganza but I loved it I loved making that show well Demonstrate made a number of good shows and I was sad uh, ironically having begun slightly bitter about Demonstrate existing by the end I was quite sad that it stopped existing it was weird Demonstrate so Demonstrate was like this theatre company uh, uh, I think its first name was 21st Century Demonstration <laughs> and it kind of came off the back of the Iraq War we wanted right. to do something which is very adjectproper yeah that first show is about, um, I suppose, the reasons why that bunker mentality that Blair had, yeah. you know, uh, took us to war and how it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that we'd, that, you know, by attacking the war on terror, we would in, as well be terrorised by yeah. ourselves as well as others. Right. But, um, I mean, it was, the, the narrative was that the political leaders end up kind of going to war with their own country without realising that they're going to war with their own country because of complicated series of kind of miscommunications and... Uh, well, it, it came from that idea of one man's, like you're one saying, man's terrorist yeah. is another man's freedom fighter. Right. And so the idea was that the main computer that was telling them, receiving the information was not distinguishing between the two and therefore they it was just couched in the language of terrorism right. even though they were off so they were perpetuating terror and also therefore inflicting terror upon themselves and so you know it was just a vicious circle that ends not too well in the play as you might imagine indeed um and then uh but then we did a show after that which was which I, keep, I think about a lot now, which was um, like a, it was a dinner party uh, between diplomats of the European Union. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. And it was pretty much... Essen, it was called. Yeah, that's it, Essen. And, um, and it was actually, it was an anti-EU play <laughs> based around the idea that um, uh, we, should, we, we should have like, we should enjoy each other's cultures, but not necessarily try and push them all together and make them into one which I think is something which kind of has not been at the forefront of what's been going on in the last couple of years but I do think about that play often because it was something we did really want to explore even if we didn't all believe it at the time yeah we want we did it faithfully and I think we it would have been it was an interesting thing to do I haven't really talked to Richard and Jed and people about it since but yeah yeah no it was that was an interesting play and then you, and then the third the third one that that was done uh was one that you kind of really were the main creative force behind wouldn't you say i mean the one that you did with the bike and what's it called oh um i wasn't really the main i, I mean i was the in star. it you yeah. were the star you the you you know you were on stage the whole time pedaling a bike to create the electricity all sorts of amazing yeah i really i really loved uh, technical stuff yeah me me and rich were particularly wanted to make a show which was kind of self uh, where the energy was self-generating I think the idea of it being a show which you could take elsewhere other than art centres and stuff we found quite compelling even if that never <laughs> happened because all the money to do with the Arts Council is tied into art centres so that's where you go if you want the money right. but um, but I did really enjoy 
making that show and being a, a performer again and um and uh, I just feel sorry for Jed, the other guy that was in it, who I think still has ringworm. Yeah, because he was in a hazmat suit. Yeah, but it was—I thought that was a really beautiful piece of theatre. But you, but then you know, it's it's interesting talking about theatre now because it's been so many years since I've kind of made straight up theatre, and same with you, right? Yeah, uh, like we we make things that have elements that we've learned about drama, about theatre, about performance. Um, but we don't kind of make straight up theatre at the moment. Life's, yeah. life's a long time. I, I certainly am, am not adverse to making theatre again. Um, yeah, I, I guess before I go into the second question, I'm going to insert an unusual uh, question kind of in between these two questions, which is, you know, why haven't you wanted to be uh, a part of Getting Better Acquainted until now? <laughs> well, I guess. I mean, you have been a part in some ways. Um, because you've been a supportive friend, uh, encouraging me and signal boosting me. But but yeah, why haven't you wanted to be a guest until now? Um, I think very early on, because I really when when you started the podcast, I really enjoyed listening to it, and I found most of the interviews on it very revealing and interesting. And so th- so partly it's simply that I just didn't think I, 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 I still don't think I have particularly much in the way of stories like life stories I'm, I'm just a genuinely dull person this is I mean this is this is a little trail for what's to come I mean this is a universal but, feeling that guests yeah, sure, tend sure. to have that they're not interesting and other people are but also I have this kind of and this might be slightly hypocritical considering I'm a, a podcast producer Indeed. and, and uh, attempt to try and get people to tell their stories in a variety of different programmes or whatever but I I'm in- acutely wary of sort of just putting too much of myself out there. I feel like I'm, I try like so. My policy on things like Facebook and Twitter are to stick mostly to work and what I'm up to, and occasionally I show good times. But I'm not an oversharer, right? And I think I think basically, <laughs> and the, I think the idea of a whole podcast with my name attached to it that people could listen to. Anytime. Well, it'll only say Matt. I mean, yeah, true. You know. But but you know, it is possible <laughs> to dig these things out, and I just I just wonder. I still think we live in a. I'm just not, the jury. The jury's still out for me on the internet, right? And how <laughs> and how much of says so podcast producer Matt Hill? <laughs> well, you know, there are lots of different forms of it in terms of web and pod and uh, social and what have you. But just in terms of the fact that because you can't really delete it and it you can say things and then you can't take them back I I don't really have a I don't I don't know where I can't self-edit and also and this is the other thing actually and this is the thing I have the worst the worst problem with is uh, if I talk for long enough like if I'm trying to create a coherent like a coherent sentence which is you know sort of nuanced and relatively complex what happens is I I start the sentence I can feel myself doing it now and I start self-checking myself and going this is going pretty well and then I forget what I'm about to say next. Oh, yeah, well, I do that on stage. Yeah. So, but, and, but the audience <laughs> kind of focuses you, because you're kind of, they're there doing the, you're listening, because they're there in front of you, they're kind of self-editing for you, so you always try and cut to the chase. I know what you mean. But when I'm performing a song, though, like, the moment I go, oh, I'm doing pretty well, it's the <laughs> moment that I forget what chords I'm supposed to play. Yeah. You know, so, so I do, rec- you know, I do have some kind of uh, relationship to that feeling. And I think most uh, presenters that I work with they have just either trained themselves or are just good enough, 
you know, they're just innately that they don't have a problem with this. They can just talk and talk, yeah. and they don't self-edit because they presumably think I'm going to snip it out, the fools. Or they, you know, they have a kind of sense that they can get on with it. But like, you know, I even now, even that last sentence, I feel like I just wound that down because I couldn't remember what to say next. It's like that all the time in my head. <laughs> so the idea of talking to you, you know, at length, yeah, you know. But since then, I have. Since you started the show, I, I went for another two or three years without doing anything. And then I suddenly realised that I was going to have to learn a little bit about what it's like to be interviewed or be on mic. Because, you know, there can, might come a time when it actually is useful. Yeah. Um, so, so I've started doing a little bit more. Right, which made your position of not coming on this show slightly harder untenable. for you to justify. Yeah. But, and I think this is, and I... I Realise I should have said this right at the top because if people have got this far, I mean, the audience will. I've seen the stats for these things; they just dip as I soon can, as you get through. But I can stick this as stick the, the uh, cold opening. So, the, so the reason, that the actual genuine reason that I'm here is that Helen Zaltzman donated some money to a campaign we were running for refugees. That's right, refugee Like on the basis that I wanted. To, to raise money for it and I said oh, well, I'll, I'll go on Dave's show if yeah 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 I mean people, regular listeners will have heard me saying donate money to get Matt on yes I hope that would be a massive uh, donation draw but it turns out uh, less people are, are obsessed with getting you on this <laughs> show than me well I mean yeah I mean, it does sound like it could be an ego stroke but just the very fact that someone did donate and it was Helen as well made me think well okay alright let's, let's do this and here we are Right, so you're doing this for Helen. I quite like. You well, I'm doing it for the. I if if people could donate refugees. that, that would be. Yeah, yeah, I okay. genuinely would like there to be more money in that pot. Yeah, me too. So uh, people should. So I'll put a link into how yeah. how people can do stories.co.uk. Yeah, there you go. So that was a thing that we did with Spark for, for refugees. It's it's interesting. You you uh, you you referred to the listeners as 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 people who are overhearing this conversation. I quite like that. I might call them the overhearers from now on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's it's interesting. Like a lot of people um, that I know, or you're not the only person who refuses to come on the show, or doesn't, or is reluctant to come on the show. Who out of the people who are you know very close to me, there are a few. You are you you are, however, un, unusually compared to those people, someone who's been mentioned so many times <laughs> on this show. Like so often, the initial question is, "How do you know me?" Oh, I met you through Matt Hill. Um, and so over time, I feel like your kind of enigma has built up, uh, which I guess is another problem for you because you're like, well, I'm boring, so I'm not going to be interesting. So the, the enigma is going to disappoint people. I just introduced Dave to a lot of people. That's all it is, Pete. <laughs> That's all it is, listeners. Well, you know, someone's got to be more socially uh, effective than me. Um, you know, so that's good. It's good. It's good. You, you've uh, you've helped me you helped me to be much more social than I would naturally be over the years. You took a year out at uni, right? Yes. Now that's the obvious thing for me to ask you about because as much as you say you don't have stories, that's like the big story. One one of the it, big stories. I don't want it to be defining for you, but yeah, it's one. Sure, of the no, it is defining. I think it, I, I learned a lot from it. Yeah. So. Um, uh, I should I should precede this by saying this is pretty much the only story I tell at Spark, the true story night that we both work at. That's the only, it's the only one you've put out anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. No, I've done a couple. But that's the one which is my Spark story, and so it's kind of slightly like well trodden. But um, <laughs> but effectively, uh, when I was eighteen, I uh, was travelling back from sixth form with a mate who just learnt to drive and he uh, hadn't learned to drive that well. 
and I was in the back seat and it was at a time when the cars uh, hadn't, wasn't illegal to have a car on the road that didn't have a, a seatbelt in the back and we were heading towards uh, he hadn't, the driver hadn't noticed that the cars had stopped for the traffic lights and it was a bit too late so he swerved off the road we hit a brick wall and I had a, like a, a moment to decide what to do about this and I, I have to say like the at the time, there were a lot of adverts. You know, there was a kind of big campaign about um, think was a campaign about driving, mm. um, and there were always shocking adverts like where something you know things would be normal and suddenly bam something would change in the car. It's normally a crash, but it could be something else. And there was one advert uh, went through my head in this this split second. I had to think, uh, and it was about how. Someone had been shunted from the back and as a whole bunch of kids were eating pizza in a car and one of the guys on the back seat went into the front and hit the head of the person at the back. Right. And he bounced back and you see his face, he's got a bit of blood on it. He's like, whoa, what happened there? And the guy in the front seat is dead. Yeah. He'd just been hit on the back by this guy. I think I recall the exact advert. It's yeah. horrible. It's really yeah. horrible. And I remember that and I thought, well, uh, don't want that. And then there's another advert where they just go through the windscreen uh, which I did not like the idea of either. So I kind of adopted the only thing I could think of, which is the emergency sort of like brace position from uh, from what they teach you on planes. So I kind of put my you know hands over my head and like put my head towards my knees and kind of sort of duck below the seat uh, in the back because I was sitting in the middle, so I kind of boost the left. And we hit the wall and. You know, I'm conscious, we get out of the car, uh, thinking it's going to explode, everyone thinks that. Uh, and uh, I feel a bit dizzy, lie down, uh, and then the ambulance arrives and I end up going to hospital. And they, after a bit of a long kind of bit of fiddling about uh, with x-rays and stuff, they realise that whilst I'm walking around, totally all right it seems, I basically uh, had a broken neck. I've been walking around with a broken neck, and the little little um, lumpy bit between your shoulder blades, the uh, C seven vertebrae that had burst. It was a burst fra- fracture, and um, I was airlifted to a, a spinal injuries unit in Oswestry uh, the next day, and uh, I spent six weeks on bed rest because I they gave me a choice. This is like pre MRSA, pre like um, superbugs, and uh, so they they gave me this option do you want an operation or do you want to like basically let yourself heal i did not fancy the idea of an operation because it could go wrong so um so we let it heal naturally uh, which is a remarkable and i don't even know if they do that now yeah but, but presumably because of the superbugs they want you out as quickly as possible so they'd intervene but they, I, I i fixed myself over six weeks and then had a it, i mean it took longer than that but i was released after six eight weeks and like that Right. I mean, the thing that terrifies me about that story is the bit, there's, the, there's like the moment when you go into the doctor and you're like, they're like, well, we'll just check him out. And then they're like, oh my God, stay exactly still. I'm just going to yeah, get yeah, somebody yeah. else to come in and, and it check was, It was out. really weird because that was like, it was like a plexiglass kind of screen. It wasn't, I wasn't in the same room with them, but I would see them and they kind of, they'd done the x-ray and then they'd held the x-ray up to the kind of whiteboard, the light board light box or whatever and they kind of looked at me through the glass and then looked back at it and then instead of running into me they the the nurse had run out and kind of pulled the doctor in who the doctor had a kind of like a 
I kind of, well, I don't see what the problem here is, nurse, look at him, and then looked at the thing, and then they both looked at me and ran in. And the next thing I'm just like strapped to a piece of wood, which right. apparently is like a, a proper medical piece of wood, <laughs> was effectively a plank of wood, yeah. a spinal board, I think they're called, and, uh, and that was it, I was in the helicopter. I mean, you can, that's the thing, you can have a broken neck and be walking around, that's oh. terrifying to me. Uh, and it, yeah, it's it, just it, muscle holding my head up. Right, and in, during that time, if things had gone slightly differently, yeah. you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of, I'm very glad that you had that kind of level of kind of fluky good luck, um, which seems a weird thing to say, because we're also talking about how you broke your neck and also had to take a year out as a result of it. And also when you were in hospital, you were, of course, you had a broken neck. So that was a very awkward position, I feel like, for a teenage, well, just ending their teenage uh, man, young man, to be in, of, like, not being able to move and have everything else done by other people, right? Yeah, it was very, it was very odd. I think anyone that's been into hospital kind of knows that uh, for the period that you're in there, particularly if you've had a major operation or you're recovering from something quite serious, uh, you kind of lose all your dignity. It's like you're... You know, the nurses are wonderful and they're, you know, sort of very chipper and they have to deal with it every day on lots of different people. Right. Effectively, you're having your arse wiped and your uh, fluids changed and just generally, it's, it's a, you know, you've just, you spent 18 years kind of getting to a point of teenage individualism where you're like, you know what you are and you know what you want from life and, and you're your own person and then you're basically back to being like two years old and totally reliant on other people which I think you know is an interesting it does stay with you in sense of particularly also the idea that I there was a moment in the car where I could have said to the driver to slow down and I didn't because socially you don't do that you're with mates you're like you know full of life and you're sort of like you know you're having fun so why would you tell everyone to stop having fun um, and so now I've and have been ever since really I'm a bit the other way not just in cars but I will often tell people what I think <laughs> uh, not in a particularly arrogant way but I uh, if I do think things are out of hand or I'm you know I have no regrets uh, about doing that yeah I mean you're very good on health and safety which you're, you're always a useful person to work with in that respect um, and it was an interesting thing, like, one of the things that I'd learned about you when I first met you, or very recently, like, in our, in our first theatre studies uh, workshop, that we kind of, were, we were all called in, and we had to do physical things with each other, we were partnered up, and we, me and you were partners, and so you had to disclose to me, like, pretty much the first time, or second time we met, that you had had this injury and that I had to be wary of that, which I'm a very clumsy person. So that's a combination of like, oh my God, now, now the, the stakes of this physical theatre have really uh, risen for me. Yeah, it, it would have been about 12 months after I'd broken my neck. Right. So, and it, and it, took, it took three years to totally heal. So uh, just things like living, lifting heavy objects, you know, that kind of thing. I was you know told not to do that for two years or whatever so yeah so I was just uh, yeah I was I was very definitely like very careful you know I got less careful obviously right (laughs) you know but uh but you know you'd hope common sense would be the case because you don't want to spend all your life 
kind of yeah. afraid. Yeah. Um, but it is also sensible to give yourself a period of time to properly heal. And, you know, you seem to have done, you, you know, like many things, I think, in life, you've found a good balance around that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did, because, I, you know, I do think of you as a pretty balanced person. Uh, you know, I'm quite envious of that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if it's fully true either. Like, there's, I also, I'm a, I know you well enough to know that you're a fully rounded human being um, with complexities and stuff. But, yeah. I mean, so the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Um, so, yeah, what do you do now, Matt? Uh, I'm an audio producer or podcast producer or radio producer. It kind of depends who I'm talking to, but if any of those terms make sense to you, that's, that's what I am. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've always wanted to be a producer, actually. Like, I think I must have been about 13, 14 years old when I kind of suddenly realised that the, there's a person behind every great TV programme and radio show I've ever listened to and they make sure it happens the way that it sounds now and I thought I want to do that job I mean I quite like the presenting thing I like you know um, talking but I'd rather be the person behind it all <laughs> I mean, it's, that's it yeah you know, that's an ironic thing because you're a very good performer and uh, you're, you, you've even got a delightful singing voice, which I know from having forced you to sing in a play that I wrote at uni. Um, <laughs> That's, I mean... Hmm. Well, you, you don't have to agree with me, Matt. That's my opinion. Yeah, but I didn't want to leave a silence. Like <laughs> It sounded like I agreed with you wholeheartedly, so I had to make some sort of noise. But I think you are a good performer. But at the same time, I understand you know, that one of your major interests is is kind of putting together the puzzle right like making taking so it's almost like you take a kind of the clock apart and then put it back together of the of the performance Uh, or the or the radio show or whatever it is these days i think what i'm always looking for is i I think i feel like i'm quite good at spotting what what is uh the most socially lovely thing about someone in audio and trying to uh, maximize that or make that the thing that they do so whether it's their warm voice or they're 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 a good listener or a good uh, you know quick witted or whatever it is, I'll try and find a vehicle. I like vehicles. I like trying to find formats and opportunities or situations to put someone who's really good at something in, and that they can shine. Really. Right, and that's, that's what I try and do. Well, that's what you've done for me. Like that's what you did with Seeing Double. Uh, it's also what you did later when I came to London and we, uh, you set up Rethink Daily, which was a very kind of early version of a podcast network, like like before podcast <laughs> networks even existed. Like, yeah, yeah. And um, a very foolhardy one in the sense that the mission of it was to do something every day, yes. which is almost like totally not the point of a podcast. Like, well, it's not, it's not totally not the point. I mean, the New York Times does one now called The Daily, so, you know... Um, and to be fair, like Rethink Daily was a different show every day. Yes. So technically it was again, like five different shows. Which weekly. is not what podcasting is, <laughs> in the sense that the whole point is that you have a different feed for everything. Um, but this was before we anyone really knew what podcasting <laughs> yeah. was. Yeah. Like you had, did you do that when you were studying radio? It was before. It was, I wanted to do something, I, after the theatre company kind of, we decided that we didn't want to enter our 30s or being in the same van together <laughs> so we decided to go our separate ways and I, I thought I'd come and do a, a masters in radio because I had no way in I had no I couldn't see a way into radio I'd applied to the BBC through their careers thing to do traineeships or whatever and always been turned down at various stages 
and it suddenly occurred to me that what you needed to do to get into radio, 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 was to uh, to know people. You know, it was very much a scratchable back kind of place, and still is, frustratingly. Um, and so I thought I'd go and do a master's where there are practitioners on that course, and then I'll meet people, and then I'll get some radio stuff. But I thought, well, if I'm going to go on the course, I better know something, which is not the right way around, really. <laughs> you know what? You're meant to learn it on the course. So we start, I started doing Rethink and working and doing some podcasting stuff because I thought, well, I better learn more than I've done from student radio. Um, and so I kind of, I said to you, I'd approached you. Yeah. Um, having moved to London recently. Yeah, I'd moved to London, was doing a kind of... I was working as a library assistant, uh, wasn't particularly enjoying not having a creative outlet at all, and then suddenly you were like, would you like to do... And In fact, I I, I, I ended up doing, like, three of those shows. Yeah. Because we did a comedy show that we took from uni uh, that we carried on doing. Yeah. Um, we did the drama series, which was eventually uh, nominated for a Sony yep. uh, Radio Award back when there were Sonys. Yeah. Uh, and me and Jen, who I'm now working with on, on The Family Tree and doing this kind of improvised drama series, we, we kind of curated for you kind of uh, some short fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah microfiction. And, and, you know, and all of that was an experiment on learning different genres and trying to you know, for, for me personally, I just wanted to work in different genres and see what I was good at and what I wasn't, and what I could improve on. And, and you know, numbers, which is the drama, that yeah. was uh, such a thrill to work on. And partly it was down because I, having moved to London, the thing that I really loved was uh, fringe theatre. I just loved the you know the fifty seater venues above pubs or whatever that uh, that new writing was being put on of various qualities. But you know lots of amazing young actors who would never get any work on the radio. In fact, actually, we had, like, two or three people in numbers who'd won, like, bursaries, you know, sort of young female yeah, talent. Yeah, yeah, They'd won bursaries with the BBC to do drama, you know, for a year. They'd be part of the kind of in-house repertory company. But, of course, there's only ever, like... There's only, like, two roles a year. This is certainly the time. I don't think it's really changed. Two roles a, roles a year for, like, a woman in their 20s. Right. So what happens is every year and another one is given this hope that they're going to have this great radio career. Um, but actually Radio 4 is just full of uh, actors in their, you know, 40s plus. Right. Um, so there was never any... So we'd be taking these fantastically trained people and we, you know, like, carry... Um, particularly and yeah. and we give them like make them we wrote a show for them basically yeah, was, I mean it was which was you know and it was great I mean it was great for me I mean in in a lot of ways again that's kind of like a precursor for the work I'm doing now with the family tree like although it wasn't an improvised show it was kind of magical realist in some ways at least by the second series and yeah. you know has these kind of unusually personal conversation like the the episode that we were not that got the nomination was a conversation between um a dead daughter and their mother like with the mother like with uh, with the dead daughter not really knowing fully that she was dead until that conversation happened um and so it was definitely like a kind of precursor for the kinds of things i look at in the, the family tree so i was really glad that you i am really glad that you gave me that opportunity to do that um and like every time we've worked together, you have done what you said, like you've come and you've said, well, what does Dave do? Let's help him to do that. 
uh, to, the, to you know in in the best way possible, which is exactly what I want from producers. You've spoiled me really because now when I meet producers in general, that is not the way they are. Um, often, many of them are not like that. Um, the guy I worked with on Forethought really was so uh, for Radio Four. So I would say that there are many there are producers like you out there. Um, but you know, you are the kind of ideal of producer to me. Like you support the creativity of the the person, but also something I haven't. I don't know if I've said this to you off mic, but something I have uh, come to realise as well is you made a lot of good calls, uh, certainly back when we were at university, about many things, um, which I kind of initially treated like you were like the man, right? You were like, oh no, I'm I'm being censored by the man, um, but in fact looking back they were all correct in fact you know we could have gone further in terms of censoring some of the stuff um just before we yeah hold that thought um louise is here okay so do you mind if i just go and let her in absolutely the keys are in the door she is uh it's her house and she is your wife so it is perfectly reasonable to let her in no 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 it's good No, that's all right. That's perfectly reasonable. Uh, so, bad calls. Yeah, like... So, or good calls. Or good calls. I mean, like, you know, there were many times when you were like, that's a bad idea about kind of things we were making, certainly within the comedy show that we did together, which you were completely right about. Like, you were completely right to say, we can't put this thing out or we can't put that thing out. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the things. Sure. Um, because I... Think they should have. I, I think they should be censored. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, it, it, it one of the things I tried to wrestle with, and I think we all did at uni, was identity and uh, sort of like what are what. And, I mean, here's the funny thing. I think I've learned so much terminology off you. You're. I feel like you're <laughs> the, the front, particularly now. You're like at the of of the people I know. You're at the forefront of sort of a new vocabulary and a way of talking about not just masculinity and gender but uh sexuality and uh and sort of just identity generally and you know privilege uh is something which i think we explored at university not necessarily for the better no um and, I agreed and i always felt nervous about him i felt guilty and i but i don't know quite know why and i don't think i had the vocabulary to discuss it at the time i feel like i do better now and that's through you well it's ironic though because i think you know i it's 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 you know because you were like you were right because you had like you might not have had the right vocabulary but you had more of an idea of how ideas would be received by a wider audience than i did yeah. Um, and so you kind of could spot how things might be misinterpreted or interpreted in ways that were not the intent of uh, some of the creators of that art. Because it's an interesting thing, that comedy show, because it was a, a, a group of different people with very different politics, and particularly, in fact, now, incredibly different politics. But back then, we were closer together. But still all white heterosexuals. Exactly, all men and all white men. Uh, and all middle class ish. There's some, com- there's a few complexities around the class, but generally speaking, we were all at university, um, and you know we were, we were like South Park, but worse uh, in some ways, or better in some ways. It depends what you mean yeah. uh, by those things. What's that humming sound? That's the sound of a boat going by. Ah, there we go. So yeah, I should say we're recording in your house as well. So that's why there's been. I think there's some children came out of a school at one point. <laughs> but yeah, like, and you know, we, we've and we've worked together a few times over the years, not just 
uh, with Rethink, but later we we, we produced together um, a series for uh, BBC, well, CBBS Radio. Yes, one of their uh, sort of experiments in digital uh, channels. Right, and that was a great show, and I remember like working on that together. You know, I remember there was a very there was a moment when I felt like you thought that I was still where I'd been back in the past, whereas I'd changed and grown as a, in, you know, in inverted commas, as an individual. Like, there was a moment when, like, you would... I felt like you thought I was going to be, like, just as, like, no, 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 we have to do it our way and throw everything out the window and not be prepared to compromise or to yeah. take editorial... There was a flashpoint, wasn't there? Yeah, there I was. I shouted at you for, yeah. for and like I was, the first and last time. Really. I know, and I was, like, I was like, you know, that was a nice moment because I was actually in a position... Where, by I can say no, no, no. I am actually, you know, I actually am on on board with compromising and uh, doing things differently to make this work. Um, but at least, but I understood where that came from as well because I had not been like that in the past, and in some ways, I'm still not like that. Like I work as a, I'm an independent. You're an independent too. Your your uh, your production company is independent, but it's independent in a way where you're working with you know Absolutely. Private Eye and you're working with BAFTA. I mean, I do a bit of things for you for BAFTA, but you're within the. It's hard to think of you as independent because even though you're a podcast maker, a podcast producer, you are doing lots of quite mainstream podcasts. Most most of the things I do, particularly things that earn the money, yeah. are for clients you know, making shows for their publications, yeah. And so and but even that Ministry of Stories one that for CBBS Radio, yeah. That was actually a different that was as a freelancer for another production company, so we had an exec. Yeah, there were loads of people involved in the decisions. And they and the exec had a person that was CBBS that they had to be yeah. respond to. And to, I mean, it was really frustrating actually. I felt like there were things that we wanted to do that we couldn't because of the restrictions placed on us by the channel. And I feel like those restrictions hadn't been there on other in 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 past iterations of BBC Radio. They hadn't existed, and they we'd kind of to a certain extent fallen into the the you know the Saxgate kind of yeah they were very nervous about things. Which but, was... but saying that on the other on the flip side, some of the decisions you know were actually quite reasonable about like health, you know healthy eating and stuff and not having too many references to sweets yeah. in the show which over you know which actually within the context of the show doesn't seem much but if you've got a network and they have too many references to sweets yeah. then it then it sounds like they're not doing their healthy eating policy any good so i mean it's complicated yeah. because what we were doing was providing a kind of platform for children to write their own stories yeah. and so it wasn't us that they were censoring when they were saying we can't talk about sweets they were it was the children which which i'm not saying is necessarily a bad thing i mean censoring is probably the wrong word like editorial decisions yeah. i think is a, a better way of thinking about it um but i mean you know out of those kinds of problems came good solutions that I think maybe made the show better yeah. I mean it could have been promoted better that's probably something like well, I, but then there we go it's the that's that's the internet right know, there's only so many so many resources and so much to put it but it, you know it got quite a lot of rotation on their sort of linear linear version and stuff and you know uh, I do occasionally you know I did at some point you know try and contact a few times to see if there could we get a second series but um, it, we never got more than the ten yeah, um, um, and they're no, long, they're no longer even available. I don't think, which is a shame. They were yeah. there for a, quite a few years after. But I think that's down to their contract rather than some sort of like yeah, uh, 
we can't, you know, I think they only they could only use them for like five years or something, and then, which you know is definitely up now. So I think, and I think now, so I think they fall back into the hands of the production company now. So it could be that they, we could release them or sell them or something. But yeah. I don't know. But you once called me the hardest working podcaster in uh, the UK. Yeah. Um, which I think is a very strange thing for you to say. Uh, because you're the strong, the hardest working podcaster in the UK. I mean, you make so many shows at this point. Like there are a lot of shows that you're making that you're producing, um, and they just seem to keep coming. And you co-created the British Podcast Awards, <laughs> yeah. um, and and which you couldn't, you, you none of your shows could be nominated for. So like, uh, yeah, yeah, that is actually a serious quandary for me because. There are a couple of clients who said we'd like to enter the awards, and I've had to kind of quietly tell them they can't because otherwise it'd, I'd be a direct problem. So there is a there is a very serious problem for my actual for the things that I'm making that they they could say well we'll, we'll go to another production company because <laughs> because uh, we can't do it because we, we can't enter the so awards. It, it's, it could be slightly detrimental to me, so I'm I'm hoping to keep everyone on board, but. Or alternatively, stay out of the judging side of things. Well, I certainly felt weird to be nominated for those awards when you kind of were one of the people who set up the awards because I felt like I'm everything I hate. Like, I hate the fact that everyone knows each other in the industry and that's how people end up in... And I'm not suggesting that's what happened with my nomination. It isn't. Other people who weren't you listened, uh, listened to my nominations and, in fact, you know... Only one of the things that I submitted uh, got a nomination, so that's proof that, uh, that that it was kind of based on what people thought of the work rather than my connections. Yeah. Um, but I definitely felt weird about that. Like, you know, and you you're, it's, you're it's in an small, interesting position. Small industry, now. isn't it? Yeah, it is. But you're in an interesting position because you've chosen not to work so much in radio at all, really, because you didn't get what you wanted there. I mean, that's me paraphrasing things you've said to me in the past. That, yeah, I, I have a general policy of not pitching to BBC now. Right. Um, and that's, you know, they've got plenty of people, <laughs> they've got plenty of workers, and I thought, well, why, why should I focus all my energies there yeah. where there's so much competition when you could kind of eke out some fresh new terrain? And it is a, it's a long, it's a hard route in the sense that the money isn't as good you know, in terms of you're trying to find sponsors for shows or you're working from clients' marketing budgets as opposed to their sort of video budgets, which are like ridiculously expensive. Um, so, so there's a kind of, so, you know, it's not, you have to make more to earn the same amount of money you would make to make a six part series or Radio 4 or whatever. But, um, but it, I found it is a very, I found it to be very beneficial. I think you know. I think it's marked me out in a in an area which, if I'd have just gone and worked at Radio Four, I'd just be another Radio Four producer. Right. You know. I mean, it's 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 really interesting to me to see you know to see your the development of your kind of career, like the the, the Matt Hillification of the podcast uh, community. Like you are like um, making like everything, uh, which is great. Um, and I know, I know that you don't. That's not true. That's You're not, not true. making everything. <laughs> I'm not making everything. Um, but that's how it feels from the outside when you like to, to see how many like uh, podcasts you are kind of responsible for, and how you just keep on kind of going. Oh, there's an interesting thing 
let's get them to make a podcast and then there's a new uh, podcast I mean I'm not saying I listen to all of your podcasts no no I, uh, yeah, it's, but it's like I, I recognise so but they're all quite different topics as well I mean that's the interesting thing about yeah them. I try and avoid the crossover because otherwise there's a real danger that I might compete with yourself well more I don't, I don't really think there is competition in podcasting because you know you can you can if anything you probably if you really like something if you and, and podcasting is a niche format in the sense that you know, you can you can create for for a very low budget, a very specific thing for a very specific audience. So if you like something really a lot, you're not going to favour one thing over another. You're going to download both and listen to both. So the trick then is to not replicate content that other people. So you you can be complementary to other shows. Right. What you don't want to do is to make the same stuff for both shows. Right. So you know, uh, that's yeah, that's really important to me. And like you know you so and but but also one of the things that's interesting to me is that you know you come you're you're now kind of uh, making lots of your podcast. I can see the door swinging open. So here comes hello, hello. my wife and daughter. Yeah, we I was just to say. yeah my 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 my, uh, my kind of my, the change in my tone of voice to say hello was not not for Lu- uh, Louise's benefit. It was for uh, the baby's benefit. Hi, hello. <laughs> Um, but yeah, are um, you are you staying in here? Are you this is interesting. My question is, what? How much longer are you going to be? Um, mm, I can go and give Colin lunch next door if you'd like. Yeah, time-wise, that's always hard to exactly say, but not too much longer. If you give me a, a minute or two, I'll go get some food and leave. Yeah, kind of take a little pause. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm you know I'm 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 uh, conflicted because I quite like the idea of Matt. Uh, having to do the rest of the interview with, with, with you two in the room but I can sense that's not what Matt would like <laughs> and I, and you I, make I, it sound like I've been like <laughs> uh, throwing my hand over my neck and saying no 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 cut cut, cut. <laughs> so that is not the case it's funny because we just got to the, like, the, the, the least the, the most like professional and the least personal like <laughs> kind of part of it I'm sketching him out as a kind of a impresario of podcasting and then uh, you know well, behind, behind the book this is the where personal I, I life. work from home yeah so that's not, true yeah, that's, not, that's true this is the context this is, which you are doing that from yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to boil some water for Connie? Um, no, this will probably do for now, isn't it? Yeah. It'll be loud for you all um, Do you want me to bring the, hair, the hide chair through? Um, no, I'll do it on the map. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah, so I was going to say, you've, you're kind of, you've become oh, no. audio... Do the thing you have to do. Do the thing I have to do. This is like arches, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. This is that's right. Or, or like, yeah. I mean, or like uh, the family, tr- the family tree. We like to have water getting poured. <laughs> You're doing very well, Connie. You're doing very well. Right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I always feel like it. 
it, it seems like I don't know any of my friends, uh, my friends or family's children's names because I always made this kind of decision to try not to say their names on mic just in case their parents don't want the uh, want, don't want their names to go on. Um, but then it always makes me look like I just don't know the names. <laughs> like the baby, and then the parent says the name, and I'm like, or like I say, my nephew. And then like you know, it just sounds like I don't know my nephew's name. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah, so you're like you're you're now in a position after lo- years of really hard work, right? Where you are kind of making a living f- and I'm, uh, from being a freelance podcast creator. Um, I'm trying that myself, but not making a living from it. But anyway, I'm not the same as you. You're a producer. I'm much more of a creator. I don't know if there's a. I'm not. I, I'm not suggesting there's a hierarchy between those two different words. I would either. say you're an auteur. Auteur. There you go. Um, or an artist, I guess, is probably what I am. But anyway, uh, I'm trying to make a living from it. I know it's really hard to do because I'm trying. Um, you have had the hard years, but and now it's kind of got to a point where it's basically making enough money for you to survive and to have a, a to, to support a child. Um, yeah, yeah. On that money, which is something I, I, you know, luckily I don't want kids, but I can't conceive of be, having enough money to be able to support a child. I kind of hardly pay my own rent. Um, but so you got to that position, but you you know you've you've you did like theatre at uni. You've done like you've done a lot of radio training. You've done a lot of radio work. So you've put the work in there. But I think like almost as important to you getting to where you are is the fact that you really like quizzes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do really like quizzes. Yeah, well, I like setting quizzes. I think it's fair to say that I am not a very good. Uh, uh, sort of player of games. I me- I much prefer uh, setting them. Well, you like setting them so you don't have to play them, right? That's, that's basically how I fell into the role. Yeah, but then I got a taste for it. Yeah, and yeah. you sort of so for years you sort of had a thing called Super Hunt Challenge, which was like a, a big treasure hunt that you did. Yeah. Um, sometimes across whole cities or areas of cities. Yeah, Paris. Yeah, that's right. Paris, yeah, I forgot about that. I still, me and Pete, who I often did those with, uh, we met the other night and we're still very keen on doing something on an island. We really (laughs) want to do something on an island. Right, I mean, you like quizzes to the point where your your stag do was a (laughs) reenactment in some ways of the Crystal Maze. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't devise it. Yeah, obviously. but it was devised perfectly for you. But it was also like my version of hell. It was kind sense. of revenge, though, wasn't <laughs> it? Was it? For totally everybody. Revenge, You've yeah. made us all play games all of these years, yeah. so we then made you play. There was, you were the only was, contestant, really. I was the only contestant, and it was uh, there was a point in that uh, day where I did feel slightly like overwhelmed by people's... <laughs> sort of like this will teach you which is just uh, incredible but I suppose that is to a certain extent what a stag do is meant to do I mean when did quizzes come into your life or this kind of idea like you, you I guess you were a fan of things like the crystal maze or nightmare or things like that growing up right uh, I think yeah I know I really like things like the crystal maze and stuff um, my uh, uncle used to did he used to do quizzes he used to like playing games, and I, I quite enjoyed the kind of drama games of like youth theatre and the stuff we used to do at uni. I like those kind of games, which were quite participatory. And I wasn't really a loser. I, you know, I quite yeah. like it when people have to succeed at something, but they do it in a team. Um, um, but I wasn't very good at sports, so I suppose something else. And I, I like the sense of the dramatic as well. So 
that, that all came to play. And then there was a point, I think, where I always used to feel quite guilty about it. Like, I knew it was a... I knew that it was a very nerdy thing to enjoy setting challenges and people would say, you know, don't you want to get involved in the game? I'm like, no, I, I, I think I just want to make, write, the, write the questions. Um, but then I went, you and I and our uh, theatre company friends went to um, Mike Fenter-Stevens' house That's right. for a music quiz. Well, we didn't go for a music quiz. It was no. just kind of thrust upon us while we were there while we were staying with, her, with Hannah's true. dad. And... Um, it was, it was just, it wasn't as though I knew any of the answers. Yeah, it was all set, it was like, you know, was, there were rounds with music and it had all been specially prepared. Yeah, it's very and well it was something he wheeled out. Thought out, yeah. Um, but what I absolutely admired and I have taken to my very soul is that Mike loved doing it and yeah. sold it really well. Right. Like he just goes, question number three. And he just goes, he's he just there, it. he's the host. I mean, he's an actor, so it kind of like, it totally made sense. And I suddenly realised... Oh, I just need to own it. I just need to own this and make it something I'm, I'm, I'm more th- that I'm enjoying more than everyone else. Right. And then see if everyone can get up to that level. I started doing the super hunt as a kind of... I mean, that's just started because we were bored the summer after uni and I got a text from a friend of ours, Jed, and he was like, what should we do today? And I just thought... I, it was just it was just I wanted a phrase that seemed long complicated and mysterious so I said what about the Matt Hill Super Hunt Challenge I thought throwing my name in would give it a branding which yeah. own it you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, and he was like what's that and so I just said see you at 10am and that was the beginning and I, I kind of put something together very quickly in a day and yeah. then then we really got a taste for it so we started doing more and more and then I started doing it for charity and then when I came to London I just thought it'd be a nice way of getting to know the city, so I started trying to find locations, and it became more like um, live art projects, yeah. where, where uh, there would be effectively a scene that would happen around you at the location. Once you once you worked out where to go, you'd have to solve a challenge. And you used like phones as well, like how different kind of things that developments in phone yeah, technology, tech stuff, yeah. yeah, like, and you'd have ring ring numbers or you'd like and you'd hear an answer phone message or you'd by 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 the last one I think there was like a you had to read a barcode or whatever on your phone or that sort of thing was involved yeah we did all sorts <clears> of like we tried to innovate and again that was down to Pete Price who did a lot of the had a lot of the fun with some of the tech involved. yeah my favorite one was when we, we did Paris and we took everyone's mobile phones off them on the train as we entered the tunnel which looking back is, is you know when you've got thousands of pounds worth of Phones in a briefcase. That's big. That's, that's big commitment. That's a big commitment. I was surprised everyone decided to do it. But then the idea was that in each location there was a payphone that you had to find, and then you you dialed Super Hunt HQ from that payphone, and it would it would tell you yes, you're at the right location. You're. Your score has been logged. But this, I think this has always been a quality about you, though, even when I first met you before that, because I think I remember we made compilation CDs for each other. Yeah. And there was a point where, you know, your compilation CDs, when I'd get them, or the tapes, I guess, probably they were back then, uh, would be, there was a point where they kind of went from compilations to quizzes. And, like, I liked that. But I think that's when I trailed off, because I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. I'm not very good at quizzes. Um but like so I remember that that's always been a kind of part of and it seems to fit very much within this kind of like taking things apart like how does the format work like coming up with things like that and I feel like within the some of the podcasts that you make now there's certainly signs that the producer is into 
quizzes and uh, sort of yeah. that sort oh, of yeah. thing. And also yeah. the audio apps that you've made, like the uh, GPS triggered audio experiences, like the Hackney Here or Soho Stories are also something that comes from that kind of interactive uh, game uh, kind of side to your brain, I think. Yeah, and that comes from Theatres just the idea that you can make everything a bit of a game and it will help people... It's a bit... Actually, it's also a bit Adam Curtis. I think I learned a lot from the Power of Nightmares. Just the idea of... What's the one after Power of Nightmares? The Trap, I think you call it. And it was about like the way that Blair and Clinton and people had gamed society into certain courses of action... And I suddenly realised that what you can do with a game is that you can... You don't have to have too many rules, but those rules will allow you to, like, create scenes, create drama in a location. Um, and with things like Soho Stories and Hackney Here, the idea was that you don't need to have a walking tour with a beginning and an end and an end point. You can walk the streets and decide where you want to go, and the stories will find you. Like, as you turn a corner, you see a, a pair of goalposts in a field... If you walk towards him, you're kind of thinking, "I wonder if there's a story there." And of course, the point, the the challenge is to deliver a story. So we have something for those goalposts, and you walk past it, and you hear the coach of a football, team, the Hackney young men's football team, or whatever, talking about their last victory. And the trick is to make everything that you see around you uh, a story, like something that you know, you know, to test the parameters of what is a story, I suppose. And that's the same with. The treasure hunts, like, how can we take just an ordinary treasure hunt and have a whole bunch of stories at the end of the day to to tell our friends and family? Um, Can I just tell you the the one I'm proud of? There's only one super hunt challenge that I've always come back to, and I just think it's the most fun. Like, in a way, I really wish I'd been. That's the only one I wish I'd actually done rather than invented. And you kind of what happens is you you've got a team of five and. You've been, you've been told that one of you can go up to this office in this part of Old Street, um, but they have to go alone and everyone else, you know, just hang five for a little bit. So you go up to the office and it's just like Ron's radiators is written on the door and you open the door and you're greeted by a man, slightly sort of nervous guy who um, has been waiting a while for you and it turns out you're basically in a job interview. And so you're asked about radiators, what you know about them, the fact there are no radiators in the office and what that means for the business, I don't know why. And then uh, finally you get, you basically, you get the job and you're sat down at a table with a little rotary telephone and asked to call people to sell radiators. So you get the first number on the thing and it's got a little script and the, the point is you have to not deviate from the script. So you have to say that, everything that's word for word and at the end of it you need to sell a radiator. So you call the first person on the list and it's a member of your team downstairs, but from a phone they don't recognise, and you can't deviate from the script. So your team downstairs get this call from a withheld number, and you hear the first words they hear when you pick up are, do you like radiators? So the thing you do is you hang up, because you think it's a call, like from, from a company. So you hang up on your teammate, and then you call the, the person upstairs calls their next, uh, the next number. It's another one of your team, and they pick up the phone... <laughs> And they hear, do you like radiators? Hang up straight away. And then the first two start talking to each other and going, what, did you just get a call about radiators? And the other one's like, yeah, I got a call about radiators. You don't think that was... And then you suddenly realise that this is the game. This is the moment where you've been trying to work out what the challenge is and this is it. Yeah. And so now you're trying to work out, simply from the script, 
how to get to the point where there's a radiator to be sold at the end of it. So the third person then gets a call and they say the wrong thing. They say, yes, I love radiators when the answer should be no. And you basically have to say yes and no at the right time to the whole script in order to get your teammate back. Um, and for me, that whole setup from not knowing anything and staying in that world, it's just a little piece of drama, a little bit of comedy drama. And then the the team that suddenly dawning on them that this thing that they thought was just a, an incident is not an incident, it's actually designed to be part of the challenge and, you know, you've been letting your teammate down by hanging up all the time. I just find that all, I, you know, I've never, I've never quite managed, I don't know if I've explained it well enough. I think you have. I it think was, that, a, it I was like, so thrilling to I me. mean, there's a number of those things, though, that you did that would, like, those those games would, did surprise the people playing them. Like, there was... You know, I remember doing the London one, and we had to ring up a phone box in France and just try <laughs> and try and work out where it was. And I don't think there was anyone planted at the other end. We just had to ring no. it and like speak to whoever was walking by. So what I like about that is the person in France is just walking down the street, and then a phone box is ringing, and then they pick it up, and it's some you know UK people asking them where they are. Like Usually, it's very English. confusing yeah. Yeah, in English. So, and I love I love that kind of like you putting these little things into the into the world that you, you can't really control and just seeing what happens, you know, just seeing uh you've made an impact beyond you know, you had an idea, you've written something, and then it's up to people to like suddenly make it fly and like see what happens next. I just love that. Um yeah. yeah. I mean, so before I before I ask my last question, I guess the the only kind of area I haven't kind of touched on that I thought, well, there's lots of other things, but the only one that I really want to make sure I cover is, you know, you've recently become a father. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, Connie's already had a bit of a cameo in this uh, episode. I mean, but but like, what what is that like? Uh, it's great. Um, I, I love it. I, I, I can sound very much like a bore when I talk about this, so I'm not going to go at length. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously the most exciting and uh, delightful thing I've ever been involved in. It's a, <laughs> it's a great project. Right. Uh, and I'm working hard to try and uh, like support her uh, many obvious talents. Uh, and find the right vehicle for her. Well, yeah, she's got. You've got a few years before you really have to worry uh, too much about finding her a vehicle. <laughs> but like, I mean, has it been what you expected? I guess, or has it been different? Well, I think I prepared for the worst <laughs> in the sense that I, you know, I'm a freelancer. My work could dry up at any second. Uh, I thought, you know, we're living the we're living in London where rent's very high and stuff and I, so money I think for the first time ever uh, I suddenly it's all very well not having much money like in the sense that if you're one person you can pretty much you can kind of look after yourself you can always think well yeah. I can go home but when there's a family element to it you're like shit I've got to I've, I've got some responsibilities yeah. now. and that and that has been that was a that was a, I think I went a little uh, I did have a patch, like, uh, not actually when she was born, but in the run-up where I was like, well, I'm really going to have to work now. And then I worked a bit too hard. Right. Um, and so there's an element of, like, now I'm now she's born, it's almost like I understand that I need to not work so much because of the way I don't see her. Yeah. So all of that's kind of, like, has to be rebalanced in your head. And also I've always made 
I've always made a bit of a joke of the fact that part of the reason I'm freelance is because I just don't like getting up in the morning. <laughs> and now I, I get up in the morning. Yeah, and you don't have a choice. I don't get a choice. And, I, and I, I, I'm kind of proud of how well I'm doing at that. But I do know it has had an impact on my ability to be myself. Like, I, I have a shorter attention span. You have to put that on hold, though, being yourself, don't you, for a couple of years? Just for a few years. Yeah, just for a few, 18, whatever. Well, no, I think the early years is the year like when it's when it's like you say when you can't sleep all of those things like I think it gets it gets you get to be more of yourself as you get like I mean I, I say this having worked with the under fives for quite a few years there's a point where it gets easier yeah. depends if you have more uh, <laughs> close together or not but, and now and now I, the other thing I find is that I'm very I get very angry about things that are going to impact the future and not in a kind of like a Brexit um uh, you know, economy kind of level, which I think happens to a lot of people. It's more like just like I that whole the whole air pollution thing with diesel cars is such a it should, could so easily be fixed, uh, and it hasn't been. And I really wish a government of some kind would do something about it. <laughs> but they but they seem to because it because they made a mistake. You know, because the governments of the noughties you know, the, the Labour government at the time, but it would have been any government, decided that everyone should have diesel cars uh, and it wasn't known widely at the time that that would mean more pollutants for humans, less pollutants for the atmosphere, but more for humans, more dangerous for the humans, that, uh, that we, maybe they should reverse that course of action, but no one has. And so we're still using cars which are, you know, and that, that still really infuriates me. And also, you know, Paris Accord, Trump, all that business. Well, that all makes sense to me. I, I never really understand this idea that, you know, parents are supposed to become kind of like more, um, l- like insular and not think about the world. Whereas I, I can't imagine... I can't imagine it not making you kind of more radical, more angry, more like, oh, things actually need to get changed because it's not just me. It's actually, you know, this child who's going to live in this in the future. It should, although I do think it also makes parents more selfish. I'm trying really hard not to become someone who, because of the lack of sleep and the, because I want to be able to provide for my family at the moment, all that business, doesn't therefore just take the easy route uh, in terms of like, you know, at the expense of other more vulnerable people, right? And that's that. I think not. Not that I, you know, I'm cutting down on charity. Whatever. It's more like, you know, the people you vote for changes on that basis or something. And it shouldn't do. It should, you know, it should be, you know, there's a bigger picture than just your family. You shouldn't just be thinking about your family when you're voting or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm no, saying absolutely. this all now because the context of this recording. No, is I understand. I understand that. Yeah, I can see why you're saying that. Um, so yeah, like the, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you, and it's been great to have you actually on the show uh, for the three hundredth episode. This is the three <clears> hundredth. <throat> so, yeah, it's well, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the three hundredth episode. Wow, I am honoured. I am honoured. Yeah, I mean, you're like you know. Normally, I do a, a special this year. I'm just talking to you, um, <laughs> although I am doing a few other special elements for this uh, week of kind of programming that I do to myself every, every hundred episodes <laughs> but this but this is the thing about why you're the hardest working man in podcasting it's like I, none of my podcasts have hit 300 none, nothing I do <laughs> is anywhere near the level of commitment and uh, and sort of uh, I suppose you know purity of, of podding that you do right and it and I just I, and as soon as you started this show I thought he's totally he, 
he, he gets it. You know, he's exactly <laughs> this is a show I could never do, and it's but it's perfect. It's exactly you know. I've tried. God knows I've tried to replicate things like this. But this is the best. This is the original and best. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting to hear myself when I listen back to episode one, which I've been doing for this 300th season of like. I've changed a hell of a lot. Like, you you know, you're worried about laying down uh, who you are, <laughs> but you're only doing it for one hour. I've done it for 300 hours. Well, the advantage is More if the Daily that. Mail ever wants to try get dig dirt on you, you know, you, they've, 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 you've got too... No, but you've got, you've got too much. Yeah, to that's true. They won't the find it. To, to, to trawl through. That's true. And also, and also, you know, I mean, hopefully being open about it. Like, I don't agree with uh, 2011 Dave. Like, I don't agree with his opinions. I don't agree with his views. <sighs> Tricky, um, yeah. So, you know, the fact that if they, if they dig out what he said, well, it's not who I am now, so I won't feel as upset. It's if they don't like what I say now, that that's when I get upset. But anyway, the, uh, the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Uh... I think I'm just going to refer you back to top of the show, stories.co.uk. Go give some money to Refuge Aid. They still need it. Okay. Um, yeah, they absolutely And it's a good, do. and stories.co.uk is Spark Spark London's website. That, that's a really lovely true storytelling podcast that you make with me. And yeah, well, I mean, I now am a part of the Spark team, and I'm only that because of you. Like, again, like you re- recognised that this was a medium that would fit my talents yeah. and art before I did. I, I wasn't a true storyteller when I started telling true stories I was I was you know now I, I kind of am yeah. it's one of the things yeah. I'm known for when I, where I'm known but like yeah so like that's what that is but, but also Spark's one of the things that you've done for the love of it as well you've almost almost at times uh, during the years I felt like you've almost refused to, to, to get paid for Spark because uh, it meant so much to you having a thing that was kind of pure and not not kind of determined by your financial need uh, that's slightly changed now you, you do take a little bit of money but uh, not from Spark uh, but from advertising but I still don't make money off it I there still I don't, I don't so I now we're at a stage now where we take advertising from Acast our podcast host um, but I pay other people to make the show so I still don't take anything well, there you go. But I mean, that's the thing. It's it's nice that you've had. Like, I could see why you wanted that thing that stayed pure. Uh, at the same time, as I was always like, why aren't you? Why aren't you trying to get some money for that? Um, because yeah, who'd have thought that I'd be in that position of like, why why are you trying to make money from something uh, when we first met each other all those years ago when I was kind of rampantly against the idea of making money. Full stop. Um, so the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. As I said at the top of the show, thank you, all of the people who listen to Getting Better Acquainted. Uh, If you feel like telling other people to listen to it and spreading the word and getting more listeners to join your listening club or overhearers club as I kind of like to think of it now since talking to Matt in this conversation if you want to tell your friends about the great conversations that they can overhear on getting better acquainted please do so share it like it all of that stuff is really important to getting other people to listen to it 
If you want to send me an email to tell me anything about getting better acquainted or to give any responses, feedback, criticisms, be wary that, you know, I'm already criticizing myself quite strongly. So be aware of what you might be opening up if you give me a criticism. But at the same time, it is important to call people out when they don't know they're doing stuff. So similarly, I do welcome criticism. It's a complicated knife edge to us anxious and depressed people who want to get better at being people, but not be too harsh on ourselves, but then not let ourselves off things have to walk. But anyway, you can email me on gbapodcast at gmail.com. And I'm goosefat101 on Twitter if you want to follow me, praise me, or abuse me over there. If you want to support Getting Better Acquainted and help me make another 300 episodes, you can donate over on the SoundCloud page. There's a link there for a PayPal link where you can donate. If you want to help me a bit more substantially and kind of long term, then I'd love you to go over to the Family Tree Podcast's Patreon account and sign up over there to fund that podcast. If you do that, you help me make the family tree. But also, if we ever get the top funding that we're going for, I'll be able to pay myself some money for the time that I take to make the family tree. And that will also benefit getting better acquainted. So do sign up over there if you can afford it. And whether you can afford to help to fund it and support it or not, please do go and listen to The Family Tree. Season one is available on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts gather together on the internet. And it's all available to stream at thefamilytree.co.uk. And that'll tell you a little bit more about it. But basically, it's a magical realist family drama although season two which is starting in august may very well be a slightly different genre that's exciting and all to play for but you need to listen to season one first to really get the maximum enjoyment from season two and just like with getting better acquainted if you would like to share that or tell people about the family tree or review either of those podcasts on iTunes or in any other place that you can review them, that would be super appreciated. Getting better acquainted, like the family tree, can be found anywhere that podcasts go together together on the internet. You can follow it on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook where it's Getting Better Acquainted. You can find out about what I do, my freelance work, uh, the things that I can do for you if you'd like to pay me for it, and also all of the things that I've done for free that you can listen to already. Uh, You can find out about all of that stuff at davepickeringstoryteller.co.uk. And you can hear a podcast that I made about masculinity called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, which was a live show and a survey, and it's also a podcast, and you can find out all about that at Mansplaining mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk On Friday there's going to be a little Getting Better Acquainted Extra that you should look out for which I'm quite excited to share with you and next week I may or may not take a week off it depends if I've got a conversation to share or an episode to share I absolutely will share it on Wednesday But if not, then I might skip a week, which I know is very unlike me. And I'm very sorry to people who want one every single week. I am a purist and an obsessive, so I also want that too. It may not work out this time. We'll have to wait and see. And, you know, suspense can be exciting and you'll appreciate it even more if you have to wait a couple of weeks for the next one when it does finally arrive. And remember... 
there's 300 episodes of this so if you haven't heard all of them then you've got plenty to fill your time with and if you have then I'm sure there's some episodes that you might want to go back to and listen to again because as I say at the end of every episode there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>